It's Sunday, September 17th, and you're listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. PNP is a movie podcast interrupted by a baseball discussion between two old friends. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, we start with the popcorn and we begin with Leo's selection, the 1996 Barry Levinson effort, Sleepers. Then we discuss the final film of Tom's pet project of best picture winners that he has not seen on the big screen, Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Then we chew down the peanuts as the Atlanta Braves win their sixth straight NL East title. The Boston Red Sox fire Chaim Bloom as the LA Dodgers move on from Jose Urias. Blake Snell or Justin Steele? Who deserves to win the NL Cy Young? Finally, the Chicago Cubs come back to earth, but are still in line for a playoff berth. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing just peachy on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. How about yourself? I'm all right. It's raining here. You know, the dog just wanted no part of going out. It's going to rain all morning. <laughs> Cuts into my pickleball. I'm pissed. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Hey, do, do you not have indoor pickleball options or is it only outdoor? Right now? Well, that's the thing. There are indoor options, but, um, you know, it's a little early in the winter, so to speak, in the cooler right. months for, 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 for me to start using them. And generally the indoor options can be expensive and they're not as good. Uh, the, the facilities aren't as good as playing outdoors. The surfaces aren't as good, you know, right, a lot right. of times you play indoors, you're playing on these wooden floors and you know, the, the, the basketball lacquered floors sure. and people hate them. Right, right, right. The balls take different bounces. I get it. Um, you know, I haven't asked you in a while. How's uh, how's your son's cross country coming along, dude? This has been a brutal week. You know, um, listeners may know. You know, my wife is laid up after knee surgery, so there's not a lot she can do right now. And this week there were four, four cross country meets. There were three for my son. And one for my youngest daughter, who's a sixth grader, and she ran over at her junior high school. It was her first home meet. That all, and then I also had to go to two curriculum nights for their respective schools. And uh, you know, it was just a, a tough week to be a father. Not much time to really do a whole lot else. And Leo, imagine means- imagine what it would be if you actually had a lot of kids. I know. Well, I do it. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm being facetious. That's what my mother used to say after she had eight. She would yeah, say, Oh, exactly. you only have three. Really? What are you complaining about? Yeah. You came from a family of eight. But, but, you know, these days, honestly, Tom, three kids is like having no, eight. No That's doubt. Right. No doubt. It, hey, 2023. I, you know, I know it's a very difficult uh, task. However, uh, you know, at least you're doing the right thing, right? I mean, it's yeah, you, no, I mean, no. you don't have an option. These Some of these things, you do not have an option. You can't say, I, hey, and, I'm going to go watch call. a ball game. I can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can't I can't watch the Cubs, you know, as much as I'd like to. But I will say that William had a great, he had a great uh, day yesterday on the cross-country track. He, he got a personal best. He broke wow. the 17-minute barrier for a three-mile run, wow. which was excellent. And then Nora... As a sixth grader, she finished second among sixth grade girls for her ju- for for her junior high, competing in in her meet. So so we're really excited and uh, having a lot of fun. But how are you I, doing? Did you I, you left I, the country? I, I, 
I had a travel uh, situation uh, earlier this week, which which was fine. Um, we actually went to Canada for a couple of days uh, to visit Gwen's uh, father-in-law um, close to um, Lake Huron. Actually, it was right off of it. And uh, it makes me think about going to Canada, which I always enjoyed. I used to do a lot of business there. I flew many, many miles between the provinces back in the 90s. But uh in the in the early 1990s, we started going to Jamaica every year, and I learned very quickly in Jamaica that when somebody would say to me, "Where are you from?" I would say, "I'm from Canada," and the reason is is because Americans just had a bad reputation because of that ugly American. And I did it for years. It happened many many times. In fact, I would be there with new people that hadn't been there, and they would look at me like, "You're not from Canada." I would say, "No, I say that so I." So that they they're like, oh yeah, you're Canadians. We love you guys. Uh, yeah, right. And so being there this week, it just was it was great. The people are so friendly in the country of Canada. I've always said Canada is like America's designated driver. They're <laughs> they're America's hat, if you will. And, and but they're the nicest people on the planet, and also some of the funniest people on the planet. Yeah. And I'll I'll, yeah. Ma- I'll make you the case that some of the greatest comedians that this our country thinks that they've produced are in fact Canadians. Yeah, that's uh, true. So, uh, so, anyways, it was a very nice time. The weather was kind of crappy, but uh, it was a very nice time to be uh, in up in the Great White Way. Were Were you up in the Bruce Peninsula? Is that no? I was on the other side of Lake Huron in a in a, a little seaside town called Bayfield, mm. um, and it's it it just was charming. You know, it was a great little place. Like I said, the weather was crappy, but it was a, a charming little place. We had a really good time. All right. Well, you know, Canada, I'm all for it. Uh, I haven't been in years. We used to go all the time when I was a kid. That would be the thing that my that that was the vacation destination my father felt we needed to go to. And so having grown up in Cleveland, you know, Canada was like a thing that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially for people in Cleveland. That was a huge thing. That was a vacation destination for a lot of the folks in uh, the mistake by the lake. I mean, Cleveland. You read The Count of Monte Cristo lately? I read a little bit of it every night. I read words like revenge, sweet lasting revenge. I don't want you getting in any trouble. Come on, Fadino, I never do. That's all I wish for you and your friends. That's it? That's it, nothing else, I swear. Four friends raised in a legacy of crime. Everybody says this place come for jobs. Who is everybody? You think running for King Benny's a good idea? Huh? A lot of things, Peggy. Not like this. Childhood prank resulted in an accident. The court hereby sentences you to no less than one year at the Wilkinson Home for Boys. The punishment. You gotta have rules and you gotta have yeah, discipline. Was far more than they deserved. It's a lot of power to have over a boy, isn't it? I don't want anybody to know. So might as well not even talk about it. The truth stays with us. Years later, they bound together. He went in there and he asked for the case. Now you tell me, what the hell kind of friend is that? In a pact to avenge those who destroy Sleepers, based on the controversial bestseller. It's time to open up the bag of popcorn. And we're going to begin with my choice, um, which is from 1996, directed by Barry Levinson. This movie is called Sleepers. And uh, it's a New York City story about a group of uh, four boys who basically steal a hot dog cart 
and they uh, and, and tried to escape from the owner, they uh, push it down uh, the stairs to a subway where it crushes a guy. Now, the four kids, you know, they're tried as juveniles and they're sent to sort of a reform school where they are sexually abused by one of the guards there. Um, really terrible, awful stuff goes on. And um, and what happens is they get out and now they're adults. And two of the boys are kind of tough guy, killer, killers for hire, maybe for the mafia. They're, they're sort of in bad stuff. And they're at this restaurant and they see the guy played by Kevin Bacon, this guy Noakes, who was the primary guy who basically sexually abused him. And they sit down with him, start talking to him, and they kill him in cold blood. They shoot him right there in the restaurant in front of everybody as kind of a revenge for all the abuse that, that, that he had heaped upon them when they were children. Um, so they end up being accused, obviously, of the murder. There are plenty of eyewitnesses. The prosecuting attorney played by Brad Pitt is Michael and uh, or and and Michael understands what is going on. He sees that his two friends from his childhood have been accused of this crime and he gets the other guy shakes played by Jason Patrick, who's a journalist uh, working in New York. And the four of them basically construct a means to get back at this guy by 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 basically coming up with a way to get these two guys acquitted for murdering Noakes, for murdering the Kevin Bacon character. And the entire neighborhood, including the local mafia boss, as well as any of the other people who are sort of living in the neighborhood, sort of understand what is going on. And they sort of contribute to the conspiracy to get them acquitted of the crime. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting movie. Um, it's supposed to be based on a true story. I don't want to reveal too much about what happens. If you haven't seen it, it is worth seeing. Um, but I, 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 I had my mind sort of changed about what I felt about this movie after I read the Roger Ebert review, because it talked a lot about how homosexuality is really seen as the villain in this movie and, and, and how you feel about gay people you know, may may have uh, clouded your judgment in terms of, of what you felt was the just thing to do in this movie. You know, um, it, it is a good movie still on its face. Um, it's hard to imagine that it is, in fact, a true story because it would just be so hard to 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 sort of to construct something like this. But but it all comes down to in the court case where the defense attorney is played by Dustin Hoffman, who who who's a lousy defense attorney, but he sort of muddles his way through this and manages to win the case. And it all hinges on the testimony of, of, of the priest, which is played by Robert De Niro, who's their parish priest, Father Bobby, who sort of looked out for them when they were in prison and in reform school and also growing up in the neighborhood. And he's the one who, who says, no, they were with me at the basketball game and here are the tickets. I have them and I'm a priest and there's no way that I could lie. What, but that's in fact what he does do. And that also opens up other moral dilemmas because here you have this Catholic priest who's supposed to stand for you know, justice and what's right and the truth. And he lies under oath, you know, uh, in a murder case, you know, where these guys actually killed somebody and, and his lie allows for them to to sort of uh, have a chance 
at being acquitted. Um, but it is a very interesting New York story. There's some really cool scenes, some some great acting. Uh, I think that uh, Father Bobby, played by Robert De Niro, De Niro is just ultimately himself, natural. You know, he, he's he's really great in this part. Um, the mafia boss, I also enjoyed very much. Victoria um, Gassman. Victoria and And, you know, there's a lovely little performance by Minnie Driver, you know, as this sort of love interest uh, who sort of helps out in this. But uh, but again, it's a movie that I would recommend, although not as much as I had initially thought when I when I when I suggested the movie uh, two weeks ago. I'm curious to see what you thought. Um, <clears throat> so. This was interesting. This is a film I had never seen, um, and I don't know why I missed it, because I kind of should have seen this when it came out, um, for a variety of reasons. I um, also agree with Ebert's um, review. However, I only give it two and a half stars. And this um, this this is a, um, a heady subject, this film was. This is yeah. prior to the, to, the, to the sex scandals that the church is still not really completely over with. Um, but that kind of came to a head at the change of the century there. So this was pretty much ahead of its time as far as the subject matter. Um, again, great New York City locales. This year, we've done some great movies that are based in New York in that yeah. time period. I'm very nostalgic for that. Nostalgic for that. Um, <clears throat> Barry Levinson, I love. He directed one of my favorite TV shows ever, Homicide, Life on the Streets, which I've seen every episode of that. Um, he likes close-ups. He likes handheld cameras uh, from his cameraman, um, which I love. I mean, I think it's, it's still very innovative today, uh, but he was one of the very first directors to do that. Um, and of course, he directed one of my favorite films of the early 80s, which was Diner, which was the movie we reviewed um, recently. Um, uh, Kevin Bacon was very creepy, over the top to a certain degree. The movie, the, here's my main criticism and why I give it a two and a half stars. It was really soft in the middle of this film. It, it, it kind of had a pretty decent start out and then a pretty decent uh, wallop at the end there. But in the middle, it just was kind of soft. And I disagree with you on Minnie Driver. Minnie Driver is no Meryl Streep. Now, she's easy oh. on the eyes, but I thought her, I thought that that to a certain degree, another actress could have done a better job. But she was not as bad as Jason Patrick, who I thought was in over his head. And and I I honestly, when I think of that guy, I know he's had some success since then, but not really. Um, he, it was kind of a miscast there on him. De Niro is De Niro. The best acting for me in the film was by Dustin Hoffman, because yeah. Hoffman played a guy. He's First of all, if you look at the body of work, he may have may have played in his career the most diverse group of neurotic individuals that ever that have ever existed. Going back to Midnight Cowboy, all the way up to to his most recent work. Um, to a certain degree, the beginning was like manufactured nostalgia, which we've seen many times, and it, it you know it made me kind of. Uh, uh, like a love letter to, to, to the yeah, neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen. The, yeah. nostal the nostalgia of my own Catholic upbringing was, was certainly there, and I certainly feel that. But I have to say I do agree with Ebert. This is not a true story. And and you know who started this crap was fa the movie Fargo, which which um, Ebert so accurately talks about. The, the first uh, screenshot on Fargo said this is based on a true story. And, it, and it's not, yeah. Well, it, it, well, when you say the words based on a true story versus this is a true story, 
You know what I'm saying? It, 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 and and yeah. I think this There's is all a, sorts of license you can take. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you read the backstory of this, this never happened. What what this writer, which is based on a novel, which is fine. You could certainly put this out in a novel form. Certainly atrocities have occurred to children from the Catholic Church over time. It's been well documented. But this, the idea that you would, you know, uh, murder your uh, you know, your, your right. abuser, your, better, your abuser. And Eber correctly points out they it almost wanted to say that homosexual forced homosexual rape is worse than murder. It's not, it's yeah. bad, but it's not worse than murder. You can't. And, and so I had real problems with the ethics of this, of, of the De Niro character, you know, Every priest I have, fortunately, I grew up in an environment where I never saw abuse. I was an altar boy for five years, but I never saw a priest do anything untowards at all. They were basically good men that did the right thing. And the priests that I know would never perjure themselves and certainly not for murder. I know that that he knew them from childhood and so forth, but it reaches a certain point where, wait a minute, you're, you're supposedly a good priest. A good priest would never do that. So I had an an issue with that overall this is a two and a half star movie for me uh you said so you know maybe you can kind of summarize and this is obviously a film that you would recommend i would recommend it but not as not as strongly as i would two weeks ago when i you know the review it's interesting robert roger ebert and this is this is just evidence of just how much we we miss him you know as 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 a film critic no doubt no doubt And, and and just how smart he was in the way that he would talk about these movies and write about these movies that that he really is capable of changing your mind about something, you know, and that's unique, I think, among critics, because very often we're we're very, you know, we're like, I don't care what any critic thinks. If I like right, the movie, I'm right. gonna like it. But 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 he has the capacity in the way that he, he's so intelligent about uh, the way he writes about these things, you know, that he he sort of changed the way I looked at the movie and and sort of I think address helps me address my own biases about, uh, you know, about some of the things, some of the issues that this movie deals with. So, uh, so yeah, I'm going to recommend one, one, one last thing that there on uh, Ebert, because, you know, he's been gone now for over 12 years and you're a hundred percent right for years. He was almost perfect with my, my opinion of a film, but lately maybe it's because I'm getting older. I find myself disagreeing with him more, but I never read his reviews before I see the films ever, ever. Yeah. I think that's a huge problem because then like you talk because about, because he can't color your judgment. Correct. Correct. I only read them actually an hour before this show is the only yeah. time I read those reviews. Now I may have read it originally. I'm presuming I did. Cause I used yeah. to read Ebert every day. Like you did, you know, whenever, right. whenever he did a review, I would read it. If, he, if I was interested in seeing the film, um, I was more aligned with Leonard Maltin. To, to be honest with you, Leonard Malton is more, he did this book on uh, movies on TV, which grew bigger and bigger every year. I loved that book. It was kind of like the movie Bible. And I found myself nine times out of 10 agreeing with, with Malton. I would say at this point, I agree with Roger seven times out of 10, but there's been lately. Sure, and again, yeah. I don't know if it's because we're changing or I'm getting older. I find myself disagreeing with him slightly. In this case, I do agree with him. Um, however, I could not give it three stars. I get to me, it's a two and a half star movie, and thus I cannot recommend this film. At my signal, unleash hell. Who is he? I'm required to kill, so I kill. Tell me your name. 
My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Are you not entertained? Today I saw a slave become more powerful than the Emperor of Rome. I will give them something they've never seen before. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Get on to your choice, which is Gladiator. When was this movie made, Tom? 2000. 2000. So uh, this is the story. It's so funny that, you know, we want to talk about the plot of this movie. I mean, this is something that everybody has seen. You know, there isn't anybody out there. There are very few people out there who who don't know what Gladiator is about. Right. But basically, we're dealing with ancient Rome. You know, it's sort of towards... 180 AD. Which, which, if you know anything about history, is the 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 end of the Republic and sort of the beginning of the Empire. And uh, Richard Harris, who plays Marcus Aurelius, is the dying emperor, yep. and he decides to, as he's dying, he decides rather than leave it in the charge of his son Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, he decides that the general Maximus, who's been winning wars in spain is the guy who's best equipped to lead the empire into the new era now of course commodus is unhappy about this murder maximus and murder his wife and child um he does kill the wife and child but but maximus is able to escape death he's sold into slavery and he becomes a gladiator under the tutelage of oliver reed proximo who in North Africa teaches teaches Maximus or trains Maximus to be a great gladiator. But then they go to Rome and they play the big stage, the Colosseum, where they do fights for uh, for entertainment and they put on battles and they kill animals and they fight animals. And it's all very, very exciting. But then, you know, Maximus organizes the other gladiators and and they win these battles when they're supposed to lose. And then he becomes a huge hero of the mob. So instead of killing him for sort of ritual sacrifice or whatever they used to do in ancient Rome, he's allowed to live. But then these, these games sort of have a political impact in what's going on in Rome is Commodus who doesn't really care about taking care of what needs to be taken care of within the empire, like building sewers and taking care of the people. He wants to put on, pageants and games and parades and gladiator battles and yeah, it, it, it's just so tiresome and you know as i'm watching this movie i'm thinking to myself this one best picture are you kidding me right i mean this there are good things about this movie and ridley scott is a is, is a is a good director and i think he almost he qualifies for almost a great director but there's so much CGI in this movie that it just it 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 I just become glazed. My eyes just sort of glaze over because when you watch anything that isn't an actor that isn't a close-up shot of an actor delivering dialogue, then it just it just looks so I don't know fake. It really does, and and I I don't know. There there are good moments in the movie, and there are good fights, and there's good action and 
there's muscular guys sweating and sword fights and you know it's it's fun but how did this movie win best picture is beyond me this in a year tom when you have recommended movies when you have suggested movies for this program that i have thought wow these are some of the best movies that i've never seen i i i was blown away by some of them, like rashomon and other ones you know like prince of the city but this one is just i mean ugh. i i i cannot recommend gladiator although if you you if you're alive now you've seen it so anyway no, I think I think you're a hundred percent right. Um, it was Thank obviously you. a weak year. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm a big fan of Dorothy Parker, the writer of Dorothy Parker, and she yeah. had a saying that kind of was apropos at one point in this movie. She used to say, "What the fresh hell is this?" Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of like. Yeah. And so it's interesting because my my review ultimately this is a three star film. Um, because I do, I, I thought that the story itself was the best part of this. That's where everything else broke down. Because I, and and I, I do agree completely with Ebert that the, the brown hues, the color of this film was wrong. The art director should have been fired because it, uh, seriously, it, it just, it muddied the whole film. And it, you know our opinion on CGI. Oh, yeah. The, right. the CGI in this film was so over the top that there's a scene, there's a battle, an unbelievably uh, un a ridiculous battle where there's tigers involved, actual tigers involved. Yeah. It was unintentionally funny. I Like, I laughed a couple times during this film, but you shouldn't have been laughing at it. You know what I'm saying? So... Russell Crowe, best actor, by the way, he was yeah. voted best actor and basically has three notes. He's three different notes that he plays as an actor in this film. And they're all dour. And, you know, he's not a happy man. Obviously, what happened to his wife and kid, I get it. Um, I love the Hollywood teeth in all of the gladiators. I'm like, where, yeah. where were these dentists back then? You know, yeah. by the way, tooth infection was one of the leading causes of death back in those days. And also, if you want to really study this subject, you should read the novel I, Claudius. That yeah. will give you yeah. a great, and I read it recently, it's a great book and way better than this particular um, subject elaborate set designs but the overbaked acting i wrote down this is preposterous um maximus just wants to go home that's the whole thing oliver reed's final role he died three weeks yeah, he after died, yeah. the principal yeah. photography was completed they almost had reshot the film but the actors were so tired of this movie and making this movie they said no just use a stunt double with him if you can and they they actually did that um I thought Joaquin Phoenix, a lot of people disagree with me on this. I thought Joaquin Phoenix was pretty damn good in this film and one of the better roles. Some people think a different actor might have done that role better. I he might have been a little crazier, you know what I mean? Right. Like like a little more, because because Joaquin Phoenix is famous for playing these sort of crazy, yes, eccentric, yeah. erratic characters. Well, this was the beginning of that, though. But he kind of held, well, he hold, he's holding back a little bit, you you feel like. Yeah. And that uh, maybe a more creative actor or maybe a, uh, an actor maybe might have taken some more chances with the madness that Commodus sort of was all about. But he was I, I, good. Everybody's good in it. There isn't, yeah. you know, but... But it's just, oh my God! I mean, when you compare this to other movies that that sort of depict this period, it really falls short, you know. Well, the comedy, the comedist character played by uh, Phoenix, um, 
was, was a little bit like Donald Trump. It, it, it reminded me a little bit of that character because basically communist was throwing caution to the wind. I mean, they were bleeding money and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing his job, quite honestly, as the emperor to make sure that the, you know, the money was coming in to, 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 to pay for all these battles that he was going to wage. Um, it's statistically impossible that a gladiator would live more than a couple of weeks. I yeah. don't care what anybody I don't care what anybody says. Come on now. I know this is like a rocky story and I get that part and and that's the part why I give it 3 stars as opposed to Ebert who gave this 2 stars. I could, I would never recommend this movie to anybody and this is a movie that I had to pick because it was the final film of my, you know, uh journey through the um through the best pictures that I hadn't seen on a big screen. I saw this on a big big screen and I'm telling you I was getting vertigo in some of those Coliseum shots because they were spinning the camera around yeah. so bad. I was like, whoa, that's that's the uh, the plot was just so convenient, especially towards the end. I had no connection to this story at all. It could have been a video game that I was playing. In fact, it looked like a video game, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, no, so- it did. But but I want to I want to bring this up. The, is this the worst best picture I saw of the ninety five that I viewed? No, it's not. But it's not, it, I agree with you. This is a movie that probably shouldn't even have been nominated for Best Picture. But um, so the final four films that I saw, I want to give them to you in the order that I have them in my list, and then I'll publish this list. Okay. 57th on my list is Ordinary People. Okay. 79th is Terms of Endearment. 89th is Gladiator. And 92, The Greatest Show on Earth, which that... It's just, you know, we, we talked about that film and, but, but to me, that's the worst of the four films we just watched. Now, what is your thoughts? I, my, my thoughts are, I I would, I would, I would flip the order of the last two. I would say the gladiator is the worst film of of the four because, because the greatest show on earth, at least you're seeing real circus acrobatics. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. You're seeing real there was no, there was CGI in that film in the train crash part, but you're right. Uh, the the uh, acrobatics they had to learn that. Yeah. Cecil B. DeMille insisted upon that, um, and you're right. So, um, anyway. but uh, but I also want to mention that when you look at the best picture nominees for the year 2001, yeah, over whom over these films, Gladiator was selected as best picture. You have Aaron Brockovich, right. Chocolat, Traffic. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which, you know, all four of those I would consider to be better movies than Gladiator. And, For sure. And For Crouching sure. Tiger, Hidden Dragon should have been the winner. Or, or and- Ch- a Chocolate is a great underrated film, let me tell you. But you're 100% right. All those movies are better than Gladiator. All exactly, and Michelle Yeoh should have won Best Actress for that movie. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Versus yeah, having right, to wait, right, you know, right. another 20 years to win it for everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm so glad this project is over, Leo. That, yeah, that, I am that, too. I will tell you because I, I there. So what? What have we? What have I learned from it? Yeah, what that's I've learned, the question. I've, what I've learned is when you tackle a project like this, do the worst films first. Don't do the worst films last because it. I, I had that same problem when I read the great the top 100 novels of the 20th century. By the end, I was like, "Come on, really?" Yeah, Whereas, you gotta, you gotta muddle your way through these. Correct. Movies. Correct. Right, correct. Right. And so that's really what I learned. And and the fact is not all uh, Oscar Best Picture winners are, are equal in the sense that, like you said, in that particular year, I would have taken almost any of the other films. We learned while Ordinary People, I have it 57th on the list in my real top film 
Raging Bull is like sixth on my all-time movie list. So, you know, we know that that Ordinary People wasn't the best picture when it came out. Terms of Endearment was another year where, where you know, I think that was weak uh, stuff. And then Terms of Endearment got really hot in the movie season towards the end there where it was the hot movie. Yeah. Um, and everybody and so, was seeing it and exactly. everybody loved sure, exactly you know, yeah and and, and and the greatest show on earth was an homage to cecil b DeMille. i mean basically so because he had done this whole body of work nothing really was oscar worthy it really nothing including this film ultimately when he push and shove and that's why i think it's not my worst best picture that i viewed because that is the 1930 the broadway melody which it is a movie that wouldn't even be nominated in the top 10 films today if it was made today. That's that's how no. that film is. So I'll publish my list, but I'm glad the project is over. to the bag of peanuts and we open with the Atlanta Braves winning their sixth consecutive NL East division title and uh I, I gotta say this is uh in a division that has some good teams yeah for and sure those, the, those teams include the Phillies and and you know a, a, a big spending monster like the New York Mets the fact that they've been able to win this division uh after losing Critical pieces, guys like uh, Freddie Freeman and uh, Dansby Swanson are still able to put together a team that can win the division and win it, you know, easily. Right. The first of the six division winners this year, you have to give them a lot of credit. Um, what What is it that they're doing right, Tom? Well, it's similar to what happened in in Tampa. It's It's almost in between what the Dodgers do, which, by the way, the Dodgers won their 10th of 11 years divisions last mm -hmm. night um which is even is equally impressive because there's some tough teams out in the west as well but i think that the the braves because you you hit on something you know they've they've lost some key pieces and have still kept up yeah. uh, being a great team which is very unusual the only team that's been successful like that has been tampa bay much smaller market the braves have more money to spend and it, it you know i think ultimately they're they're a, they're a damn good team. However, they are on pace to win 106, 107 games, which is remarkable. Remarkable. But I've seen teams like this. It reminds me of my 2012 Tigers that finish great like this, but struggle mightily in the playoffs if they have too much rest. I would treat the Braves like they're three games out if I manage that ball club, so that yeah. they that they enter the playoffs, you know, with a chip on their shoulder and their hair on fire because the complacency will will kill you. Um, and you can't have too much downtime and all that kind of stuff. It's a very delicate balance that Snitsker has to, to has to, to, uh, weigh there. Um, 
you know, as they, as they finish out the month, um, the good news for them is it allows them to, to try a whole bunch of different things, but I think that they have to ultimately stay close to what got them there uh, so that they stay fresh because you're right. The Phillies are one of those teams that could catch fire again yeah. uh, in the playoffs. Right. They have the pitching staff, um, not quite as good as Atlanta. The other thing too about Atlanta is they have good relief pitchers. Um, yeah. And so, um, they're going to be a tough team, but I think that baseball it's in the era of the have and have nots. You have all of these teams that are really, really good. And then you have all these teams that are really, really bad. Um, two, two of the teams that we track are in that category, the, the Tigers and the White Sox, um, not the Cubs, but, um, but the Cubs are in another tough position. We'll talk about that a little bit down the road. Um, it's interesting that, um, you know, the Phillies are run by Dombrowski. You know, that that's he's he's been very successful, Dombrowski, in very short um, stints with ball clubs where he's able to spend the owner's money. Right. And where where he's not developmentally, he's terrible. And I will make you the case. He's the worst baseball head I've ever seen with relief pitchers. That's what doomed us in 2012. We had great starters. We had great nine on the field, but we had we had a terrible bullpen. And I think Philly Phillies have some of that problem today. So kudos to the Braves. Let's not forget the Braves in the 90s. Remember, you know, the Braves in the 90s, they won like 15 of 17 titles. Even though they only won one World Series, which is 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 disappointing and kind of kind of a shame in one regard but this team is on par with that 98 team which also didn't win the title but they won 106 games you know when do you think about the great teams of all time there's very few that go above 105 wins in a season it's it's it you can almost count on your hands so kudos to them they could even win 110 if they stay as hot as they've been um but speaking of Dan, Dan Dombrowski what happened in Boston Leo well, you know, four years after the Red Sox fired Dave Dombrowski, after he had sort of, the sense was that he had sort of ruined uh, the Red Sox after they'd won the World Series in 2017, they went with Chaim Bloom. and uh, From Tampa and Bay. From Tampa Bay, a very, very smart guy. Yep, yep. But uh, the problem is, is that uh, the Red Sox just, you know, they're in, they're tied for last in the toughest division in baseball. Um, and they don't look like they're really ready to compete with the best teams there. And it's sad. Um, and, and, and it really goes back to the fact that they traded the best player in baseball. And I'm not referring to Shohei Otani. I'm referring to one Mookie Betts, a man who can play the outfield. He can play the infield. He's a tremendous defensive player. He's a tremendous offensive player. He's great in the clubhouse. And he's fantastic in the clubhouse. He holds players accountable. And 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 that he that that Bloom was unwilling to pay uh, bets what he was worth on the open market, I think is an indictment really of his uh, of his tenure as a general manager. Now, I don't know if John Henry told him that he didn't want to pay. That's bets. correct. That, that's and, not and on that Bloom. That's on John Henry. And that is on John Henry, but. But the fact is, is that 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 Bloom traded bets and what he got in return wasn't that great. He didn't really get anything that that put the Red Sox in a position to compete as a result of trading bets. And and if you look at the team now, I mean, they score a lot of runs. They have a good lineup, but they don't catch the ball and they don't have really effective pitching. And um, and that's just not going to cut it, especially in that division. You know, there's just too many good teams. 
I mean, uh, Tampa Bay seems to have figured out a formula to compete, as has uh, the Baltimore Orioles. You know, and then you can't forget about the Yankees and the Blue Jays. And these are teams that are powerhouses, yeah, you know, sure. and, and you just have to do better. And, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be a hard road going forward. I don't know what, you know, it's, a, it's an odd time because there's not really an obvious choice to replace him. So I don't know what it is they're going to do. And uh, if you're a Red Sox fan, this is a real, this is a difficult time. You know, uh, th- th- these next five years could be very, very hard for this team because I, I don't see them getting better anytime soon, at least as far as, uh, as being able to compete in that division. So, you know, to quote Lou Holtz used to have this saying uh, when he coached Notre Dame, the Irish, um, when he was hot on the tail of a prospect and the prospect would invariably turn him down for a variety of reasons. It could be, you know, how difficult it was to uh, graduate from Notre Dame. But he would, if it was a big player, he would say to them, son, you didn't make a four-year mistake. You made a 40-year mistake. And I feel as though um, when you get rid of a Mookie Betts, you're not making a one-year mistake. You're making a 10-year mistake in baseball. Yeah. That's the equivalent of that. And that is not on Bloom. That's completely on John, not specifically John Henry, but his management team, which I think Friedman or something like that is the guy that runs that that was Bloom's boss. And you're 100% right. It's not like you're going to go out and get a uh, you know another guy that was that is uh, talented as this guy, just like what's his name, uh, uh, the the Cubs GM and old Boston GM uh, uh, Theo. You don't, you don't replace a Theo. I mean, it's just, you could say that, and 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 they can come to to uh, in the case of the of uh, Theo. In both cases, he control he owned the football. He decided when he would leave. He didn't get fired. If you think about it, ever. And so Bloom is one of those guys. He's gonna somebody's gonna hire him. I'll tell you that right now. But if you give him the keys to 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 the right vehicle, I think he could be very successful because he's got a brilliant baseball mind. And well, you know, it's it, not it, his fault. It was not his fault. It's interesting because you know the with the White Sox naming Chris Getz as their GM, I would be looking at at Bloom for sure fold into the organization in some capacity, and maybe you make him. I don't know the assistant GM or make him president of baseball. But, but Reinsdorf has never done moves like that. He's always gone on the cheap. I hate to say it, but it's true. He, he's always given the local guy or a, a, a internal guy. And I, I don't. I would never see Bloom there, even though the Sox deserve it. Their fans certainly deserve it. They deserve um, something, man. They do. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's. And, and you're right. I, I, when you said two weeks ago that. We we need to stop talking about the White Sox right now. Yeah, yeah. You were right. Yeah, we there's do. There's really nothing until there's something to talk about. Correct. You know, because uh, it's it's just really bad. This is one of the worst years I've ever seen any team have anywhere. Correct. And 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 it's just it's not all things that 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 are their fault, but nevertheless, it is one of the worst. I mean, when you talk about the shooting that happened within the ballpark and. <laughs> right. It was the guy. Kind of, it's, almost like, it's almost like an opera. It's such. It's a comedy, but it's it's really a tragedy. <laughs> and then there there was also the guy who got hit by the car, you know, in front of the ballpark by the person who drove back onto the Dan Ryan. You know, uh, I mean, there's just been all sorts of awful things have happened to that team this year, and uh, and until there's something good, I, I'm I'm fine with just sort of leaving them on the back burner. So, but. So- uh, 
Speaking of moving on, the the, the Dodgers decided to move on from uh, Jose Urias. Um, And uh, because of his recent, first of all, his he's had numerous problems with um, domestic disputes, but apparently he beat beat up some woman outside of a soccer stadium. And um, they basically they took his locker out of the out of the locker room. He got his locker and gave it to Colton Wong. Right. Right. You know, just called and, up. And so it, it, you know, I don't know if that's grandstanding. I don't know what it is because because it, it reminds me of the case of what's his name that's playing in Japan right now. The Dodgers, once they realize that oh, these Trevor guys, Bauer, yeah, Trevor yeah. Bauer, once once, you know, once the um, worm turns, if you will, they seem to they try to take the moral high ground, but they never take that moral high ground until the worm turns. If you notice yeah. that, like yeah. they waited and waited and waited. So um sports is a very interesting place um if uh if you're really talented and unethical and i think it po- in, in all sports this issue um exists um even my, though I my, think- my question though is how does this affect the team as they go into the playoffs it because, doesn't it doesn't see i i disagree i think that this this is you know, I, I don't I don't know if it's going to be directly responsible for them winning the you know, whether right. or not in the World Series, but but at the same time, a team that has this cloud around them and that loses what was a I wouldn't say that he was a critical piece. No, to he's this. a solid three, number three pitcher. He's not a but, one or a two anymore, but yeah. But he's a pitcher who would have pitched in the playoffs, and uh, he's a pitcher who's capable of dominating. And uh they're gonna miss that no matter what. And, and, you know, it, it just is, is the stench of it just sort of, you know, I was, I was watching The Shining the other day and sometimes when bad things happen, it leaves a trace, like somebody burning toast, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, right. It's just, that's the kind of thing that, that, that may happen as a result. I don't, I, I don't see them being successful in the postseason this season as a result of this. But, Interesting, uh, because I, I think they will be. So that it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But you're absolutely right. If you think about it, they haven't had this pitcher for a little while, and they're still winning. It's it's kind of like the Braves situation. They're, they it's inexplicable. You take out a key component, and they still keep winning. They still uh, keep winning, because they're yeah. they have great foundations in those in in both of those ball clubs. Um, Dodgers Dodgers were left kind of like with Bauer, except they really dragged their feet on that one. We're left with no other choice. I mean, you can't, you know. In, it was in hard world. with it was hard with Bauer because there was no criminal complaint. Correct like, at the time, the exactly, and it became a he said, she said. But then there was too many she saids uh, yeah. besides the one woman. So there, you know, it, it's again, I don't know what you do, but I do know one thing: a player signs a contract, there is a morality clause in there. You have to behave. You have to conduct yourself. You're representing a business uh, publicly. And and uh, so there's different rules than there are for, for what you and I have to deal with, uh, with employers. So, you know, the, I don't, I don't see where the, Do- I don't think the Dodgers are, did anything great here. I think they did what they had to do. No, you're, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. And uh, you know, he will have to figure out, you know, he, he, he needs counseling. He needs correct. something. You're correct. And, uh, and, and I, I don't, I don't know the details of what happened. Apparently it was in the parking lot outside of a game where inner Milan or uh, not inner Milan, inner Miami was playing. Yes. And he was there. Correct. 
but uh, but you know, Messi wasn't there when it happened. But they were no, no, right. This was outside the stadium. He went to a soccer match in Miami, and and he started beating on a woman, and he's done it before. And 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 my my theory is sports, baseball, football, basketball to a lesser degree because they're so so wealthy. These guys tend to have guys that are that are basically criminals in, in that that because they're great athletes but they're also criminals and well yeah that 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 some of the questionable behavior becomes it, it's tolerated yeah, yeah their ability to play the especially sport especially if so you're that. great if you're not great they call you right away but if you're yeah. great that you know it's just a very complex morality issue as far as i'm concerned so um now there's an interesting race for the Cy Young award and that's going on between Blake Snell of the San Diego Padres and Justin Steele of the Chicago Cubs. And um, Steele had been leading the National League in earned run average. Right. And he had come off of a stretch where he had just pitched, I don't know, just some unbelievable games for the Cubs. He was leading in wins. You know, it looked like he had the edge, but then he went out and gave up three runs in the first inning against, uh, against um, Arizona. And they end up losing that game. A and critical game the Cubs needed to win. They really did need to win that. And and so I think that Snell, even though he doesn't have as many wins, he is better in earned run average. Although there are other metrics where Steele is a better pitcher, like fielding independent pitching and so on and so forth. But but I think that Snell may win the award, as much as I hate to say that. Uh, do you agree? Uh, yes, because Snell has a uh, has a a, a full one point two win above replacement, bigger or or larger than uh, Justin Steele, and you hit it on the head. Steele needed to win the ERA title to yeah. win the Cy Young, and that's not going to happen now. It, it, I think it's statistically impossible. Well, let's put it this way: he'd have to throw like a perfect game, and uh, Snell would have to really blow up. I just don't see it happening. Um, what, but I, he what needed think, to do that to win it. That's what I'm point I'm trying to make. He needed to if, win that ERA title. If he pitches pitches the Cubs into the playoffs, I think that that's something to consider too. Yes. That, that Snell isn't going to be able to say that he did, you know. But 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 again, I mean, the wins are fairly close. I think I think Steele has two more wins, and and a lot of people say, well, wins don't matter, and and I think that. That's a mistake. No, that's not true. Wins do matter, and Strider has seventeen of them for the Braves, and he he leads, you know, basically that category. Steele is second with sixteen, which is impressive. Snell has fourteen, so there's, but but Strider has the most. No one, just, let's just throw this out there. No one is as good as Garrett Cole was on the Yankees. He's got like a seven win above replacement as a pitcher this year. He's head and shoulders the best pitcher in major leagues uh, metrics wise all if you take everything into consideration pitching defense all that stuff and so the good news is these awards are voted on at the end of the regular season not it doesn't matter what you do in the postseason people get very confused about this so in other words when it comes to snell or steel um, or strider to a lesser degree they must make their case with the last two weeks of the season there's only what 17 days left you know yeah, it's, it goes yeah, through I mean, yeah so three more, three, four more starts. That's it. It's it's unlikely. And again, what I love about those awards where Cy Young, MVP, all those things, manager of the year, is that they're voted on. Like right now, the ballots are being circulated, and you have to complete them by the end of the regular season. And 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 also I want to mention that that while you know it's not like it was 20 years ago, where the pitcher with the most wins 
would always get the award. You know, basically, what I mean? basically. And you know, but but uh, but in this case, you know, and 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 I think we're we're sort of of a mind now where wins aren't as emphasized. I I I won't go so far as to say that they don't matter because they do matter. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep track of it. And, no, and but it, look at it like this. Nolan Ryan never won a Cy Young Award, and it's because of the wins. It's because of that category. He never had the, you know, the league. You know, one year he had like a 2.13 ERA but lost 17 games because his team could not – they were in awe of him, often, his offensive back backup. I've seen this happen where the pitchers are so good that his own hitters can't hit. Yeah, you right. know what I'm saying? And so um, you're right. I think wins used to be the metric that in ERAs, but now there's, 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 it's a much more complex. Strikeouts come into play. Correct. And, correct. And all, you know, the strength of opponents, there's all kinds of things that, that come into play. And I think that the national league is the only race. There is no race in the American league. That's what I think. That's interesting. So the Cubs um, were flying high. They were <laughs> right. They were in a really, it looked like they would challenge Milwaukee to win the National League Central. But after, did you see last night's loss, by the yeah, way? I, I read it this morning. Uh, but the fact is they've gone, I think, three and seven since we last spoke or something yeah, like that. And, they, they, and that's the why. Is, they, they they're not going to win the division. They, have the, a, they hit a rough, rough stretch, and now they're going to be fighting to make the playoffs. Because, again, are. there are other teams that are that are ascending, including the one, again, you said Steele needed to win that game. And in fact, the Cubs needed to sweep Arizona and they didn't yeah. do it. They didn't do it. And so um, I'm. And it's hard. I mean, they were in, look, they were in all of those games. Yeah. And, and these are tough, tough losses, especially last night's where they had a one run lead. Right. In the 13th inning. Correct. Correct. Two outs with runners at first and third and two strikes on the hitter who lines it off of Hayden Wisniewski. The ball falls for an infield single and the tying run scores. And it's just, I mean, and then they almost threw the winning run out at the plate, but the, but you know, Gomes is tagged just misses right. the runner's hand. Oh, it, it's the relief pitching that has betrayed the Cubs in the last, I'd say 20 days. Uh, their relief pitching has been horrible. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I they're they're what Sparky used to call in a bad spot, and that's because they're an average team that's played well. And and when you're an average team that's played well, trying to ascend to the playoffs, invariably you're going to get knocked out in the playoffs. But but it also screws you up for few in the drafting process in future years. And that's the part he didn't like about it because he used to think either win or lose badly or yeah, greatly. Right. So if you can lose badly, you'd get a better draft. Correct. Rate. Correct. It, it's more well, of a foundational issue. And and that's the problem that the Cubs, the Cubs had, we talked about this many times this year. They had, the management had no idea that they would be this good at this point. They, they believe me, if, if they said that they were lying, they thought they knew this was another rebuilding year. They think that the, 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 the great, uh, you know, sunny days are like 2025, 24, late 25. I thought that was the, the old Cubs plan. Well, in route to that plan, they, they actually got really hot this year and kind of changed the plan. Yeah. Except the Cubs still did not really do anything to help that team at the break. And so, you know, no, they didn't what they did. They did not trade assets. Right. Stroman. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. exactly. They didn't trade long-term assets or to, to, to get short-term ones. Right. And I think that that's actually 
long-term, that's a good thing where this club is concerned because when you consider what they accomplished this year, how they went from being 10 games under 500 to going, you know, more than 10 games over 500, right. you know, and, and they pulled themselves into contention and they still may yet make the playoffs. You know, it's not, it's not over yet. Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, this has been a successful season and I think that they have something to build upon for next year. And if they do make the playoffs and, and, and if they were interested in signing Shohei Otani, I, if I were Jed Hoyer, I would invite Shohei to come to a playoff game at Wrigley field. If such a thing were to happen, if they had a home playoff game, I would make sure that I invited uh, Shohei to come and sit in a box and soak up a little of that atmosphere, because that <laughs> is what the Cubs have to offer. You know what I mean? It is yeah. fun to play ball on the North side at that park in front of those fans, you know, it, it is. is a special place. And if Shohei cares about these things, if he cares about things that are beyond money, then he should seriously consider signing there. You know, you are way more bullish on this than I am. Uh, but I, but I think hearing you speak, maybe the Cubs should hire you as the ambassador to try to get Otani to side with the Cubs because you make a very passionate case for him. I don't think the Cubs are on their radar as on Otani's radar. And I'll be honest with you. I just I, don't. I, I, that, I think it's crazy. Seattle. I think it's New York. It's he's, he's going to do something broad, and I, I just don't think it's Chicago. Uh, but he's anyway. going to make fifty million dollars a year. You know, it, it, pro gonna... providing that he he doesn't become this injured heap of greatness. Yes, yes, he will. But I have some concerns. His oblique is bad. He's got a tendon bad in his arm. You, he's played pitcher and hitter as great as any man that ever lived for a short yeah. period of time but it may end up prematurely ending his career because the fact that he did both of those things. So I still think he's a hall of Famer. If he quits playing today. You put a guy like that in the hall of fame. Cause we baseball's never seen a player like that. I don't care what you say. Even Babe Ruth, you never, we've never seen a player like that ever. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. That's true. So um, do you know who Pete Crow Armstrong is, Tom? I, I do because I saw him make a spectacular catch, one of the best catches of the season for the Cubs, either yesterday or Friday. I don't know what yeah. game it was in. Well, he's had he's had he had two catches in Friday's game. That was at Friday then. Yeah. The and Friday he where he went completely out of range and caught a ball that I don't think many guys in the major leagues could catch. And there's some great, obviously, outfield defensive outfielders. This guy. Is, I don't know about if he's going to be a hitter. I don't even know he's going to stay in the majors, but I know he's got a pretty decent glove on him. <laughs> he does. He he He's a major league ready outfielder right now. And they were saying things about him as he was coming up through the system that, uh, that he, he was the best center fielder in their entire organization and, and maybe among the best center fielders in the game. I've seen Playing. flashes of it. Well, he made that one catch going into the right center field gap where he slid on his knees and caught that ball basically about six inches off the ground, mm -hmm. which was unbelievable. And and so he That's what I'm talking about. That's the catch I'm talking about. Yeah. That, that is was, one of the best catches of the year. I'm telling yeah. you. Any no, he, any he, in, in all of baseball, not just the Cubs. It that's how great it was. And it's funny because you know, you have already a great center fielder in in Cody Bellinger, and you have a really yeah. good one in Mike Talkman. Who made that great catch in St. Yeah, Louis? Talman can't hit though, but yes, yes, he's a better, oh, he's a great defensive. Yeah, I don't think so. I've watched a lot. He's just inconsistent, and well, so Crow Armstrong needs to have a better bat 
to win that position. But if I'm the Cubs, there's no way I'm letting Bellinger go. There's no way on God's no. green earth that he's walking. I'm, you know, basically blank check for him. Because if they don't do that, then then we as Cubs fans, we, we're like, we might as well be rooting for the fucking Sox. I mean, I hate to say it. <laughs> but but that's not even the most, well, like, like the fact that he's a great, that Armstrong is such a great defensive outfielder isn't the most interesting thing about it. What is the most interesting thing? There's a Peanuts connection here in that his mother, Ashley Crow, was the mother in the movie Little Big League, the mother of, uh, (laughs) I mean, and and so so if you've ever seen that movie, it's about a a little kid, a 12-year-old kid who basically inherits the Minnesota Twins and names himself manager of the team. I I do remember that film. Dennis Farina and, and... his mother, played by Ashley Crow, you know, wipes his face off before yep. the game, and that goes up on the jumbotron, and then she ends up dating one of the players, right. and uh, you know, she's quite a she was quite an attractive woman in that yeah. movie, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, but but that that's kind of interesting. Both so, so until Pete Crow Armstrong does anything significant in baseball, he's the second most famous person in his family. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. We are out of time, my friend. It's time for you to pick your movie or I could pick mine first, what however you want to do it. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead. You know, after you picked Gladiator, oh no, I wanted please. to go with <laughs> I wanted to go with a movie from 2001 that was nominated for Best Picture that could have or should have won. And I'm gonna go with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Great. That's a great movie. I I did see that on the big screen, but I'll happy happily watch that one again. For yeah. us, you know, I'm we're still stuck in the uh, 80s and New York City. We're going to go back to 1985 for Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Oh, After Hours. That was uh, I didn't know that that was okay. I didn't know that he had directed that. Yes, he did. I've seen. Oh, that's a fun okay. movie. Okay, so don't say anything else. We don't want to confuse our our, our listener. That's that is a a, a really fun movie. I'm looking forward to this next week. All right. So uh, for myself and my good friend Tom Hockney, we are the two peas in a podcast. Lately, I've been thinking how much I miss my lady. 